Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to another edition of Deep State Radio. I'm here in our tiny studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, somewhere in your nation's capital, with... Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, Julia Yaffe of The Atlantic, and from the West Coast at Stanford University, Corey Shockey. How are you guys? Yay. We're Yay. Great, David. So good, David. We're so happy. You should be happy. There, the apocalypse has not yet occurred, and for, that is reason to rejoice. For those of you who have not started following on Twitter, Rosa Brooks's dog and Corey Shockey's horse who carry on a whole Twitter dialogue <laughs> throughout the weekend. Well, I feel like I should scream for my cat, though. You, absolutely. Well, you are welcome. Julia's cat. We are welcome to have Julia Yaffe's cat. Does your cat have a name? Their yeah. horse and dog yeah. do not, by the way. The horse and dog, the horse and dog also don't know how to use apostrophes properly, but that just shows that they're So they don't get the it's and it's distinction? Well, no, they're just Rosa They don't have opposable thumbs. Come on. Yeah, no, no, I think... I think they're doing amazingly well. Given, yeah, particularly given, the horse. Given the lack it, of opposable thumbs. I mean, the horse only has hoops. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm Good saying? Good point. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's why the horse has fewer followers than the dog, however. In, in any event, another thing worthy of note here is, um, and I'm perfectly willing to make this all about me to start, uh, but as of the day that this podcast posts, my first column for the Washington Post will appear. Yay. And every week I will be doing a column for the Washington Post. So people who don't get enough of the podcast or enough of what Rosa, Corey, and Julia are writing now can get some of mine. But here's what I – Yay! Thank you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Should we do a little group cheer? Okay, no, everybody. Hip, yeah, hip, hooray! Hip, hip, hooray! Hip, hip, hooray! As they say, this is the Ministry of Snark. <laughs> no, that was uh, completely true. That was very sincere. You can tell. Yeah. So, there's no snarky undercurrent to that, David. We were, um, all of our eyes were misting up. No, I think this is just further evidence that we do secretly rule the world, although it's we kind of let out the secret when you're writing column for the Post. But Who's we, the Jews? All of us. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, the Jews, too. Shh. <laughs> the Jews, the dog, the horse, the cat. Yeah, right. By the way, Go to at Julia Yaffe's cat <laughs> to follow. The cat is actually the dog A is responsible. The dog is responsible <laughs> for world titanium prices, but the cat is responsible for the world Jewish conspiracy. So go straight. There you go. Straight to the cat. She has a straight line to Mossad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, um, the trilateral commission. Exactly. In any event, the thesis of this column is that something. Odd has happened, and that is that three presidents who could not be more dislike one another, George Bush, 
Barack Obama and Donald Trump have collaborated inadvertently on bringing an end to the Pax Americana. Bush did it by overreaching, torture, and alienating allies. Obama did it by overreacting to Bush, being indecisive, alienating some allies, disconnecting with other places. And now Trump has done it with ignorance, incoherence, bluster, um, and Twitter. Twitter. And so here's what, you know, here we have this kind of strange phenomenon. And the question is, if this is inadvertent, what's underlying it? What's really driving this? Is this something historical? Is it something political and the will of the American people? Is it have to do with the relative rise of other powers? And of course, what are the consequences of this? And so, you know, you're 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 you're, you're making musing mm. noises mm. there, Ro mm. Rosa. <laughs> no, I, I am, and I was. Uh, I've been talking about this with several people recently, and 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 I think that within the deep state. Uh, and amongst elites in this country, there's there's a sort of a massive um, failure of imagination going on um, in the following sense um, that everybody will agree, I think, with your original premise, David, which is that uh, for a variety of reasons and we can apportion blame in a variety of different ways that the Pax Americana is, is, is coming to an end. Um, but here's where the failure of imagination kicks in. Every time I have that conversation and conferences occur on this topic and so forth, everybody promptly goes, yes, 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 American influence and power have been in decline. And that is why we must regain the mantle of leadership, blah, blah, blah. And they start outlining all these things, which I think are, for the most part, entirely delusional um, that should or they think are about to or must happen uh, delusional for a variety of political reasons, economic reasons, structural reasons. I think that the the what we should be talking about is what does the post-America world order look like, and what what capacity do we still have to influence the shape of the post-America world order? And there are a whole lot of thought experiments that we should be undertaking. Um, there's the thought experiment of what if China dominates the world order? Uh, how does that look? How does that play out? Uh, what if it's, you know, what if it's no one power emerges? How does that play out? You know, and what is America's waning role and how do we protect our, our interests as our power wanes in this various post-America world? And, and I don't think anybody wants to have that conversation because it's too scary and our brains just can't quite get us there, but we should be having it. How's your brain handling this, Julia? Good. Uh, we're no <laughs> well, I, I, I'm just thinking about how the failure of imagination was also a failure of imagination to um, anticipate this because in some ways it was inevitable. It, this is baked into the American identity, the American experience, into American history, this kind of reluctance, the flirting with – you know, a more active ro uh, role in the world and then backing off and then being, you know, being forced into the role again and then trying to back out of it because we're kind of on Bi one hand. Bipolar. Yeah. On one hand, we like to dominate the world and like to be number one. On the other hand, there's things like George Washington's farewell address and, uh, you know, and like a deep current of isolationism and a reluctance to play this role. So in some ways it was, it was going to happen like this, this, the, the world was going to turn and we would get reluctant again. So how come nobody 
I mean, we've been saying this also for a long time, right? Like people have been predicting the decline of American power for well over a decade and yet there have it's it's like the republicans um trying to repeal obamacare for nearly a decade and then when they actually get into power it turns out they have no plan right well right but i mean you know Corey, one of the things we talk about is the, the decline of american power as though that were necessarily the exact same thing as the decline of american influence and you know the united states is still the most powerful nation on earth we still possess you know, economically, militarily, and so forth, unique capacity. What we don't seem to possess is the political will to use it. We've let the institutions that amplified that power decline. We don't particularly have a plan for, you know, the use of our power, even any kind of coherent foreign policy. There has been the relative rise of other powers at the same time. And the consequence of all of this is that we are out of a period where the United States was clearly at the lead, in charge, uh, in a way that few other nations ever have been in history, and we're on to something new. And and so, I, I, first of all, I wonder if you agree with that. And then secondly, as far as those thought experiments that Rosa proposes, um, have you been noodling around with those? Yes, I love Rosa's suggested thought experiments. I wish somebody would organize a conference on the subject so that we can think through in a creative way. If the new international order is going to be the rise of the rest with with or without mediating institutions, what does that world look like? If you anticipate a world of Chinese domination, what does that look like? What does a chaotic world with nobody in the lead look like? Um, I personally think that uh, the United States is going through an episodic uh, period of, you know, discouraging our allies and being disinterested in the world. And as soon as we see what rules that others begin to craft without our influence look like, we will get re-energized to re-engage our power. But my favorite article ever written on American foreign policy was written by James Fallows about 15 years ago uh, when he got back from being a correspondent in Beijing. And I can't remember what the actual title of it is, but the whole point of it is that it's about the role of the Jeremiah in American foreign policy, you know, that we always think we're failing and that's how we figure out how to succeed. And he uses the examples of, you know, the rise of the German economy in the 1950s, this Wirtschaftswunder that only 10 years after World War II was going to overtake us. And then Japan in the 1970s and 1980s, who had figured out manufacturing in a way we hadn't. And I think very often um, projections about the future of the international order draw straight lines out in a way that actually uh, doesn't reflect how the United States is dynamic, both as an economy and as an international leader. But I, I wonder, you know, Rosa, one of the things that we uh, tend to – when we have these discussions, first of all, we immediately go from a changing American role to American decline, which is, again, they're not the same thing. And secondly, we tend to immediately go to the idea that a lesser role for the United States is somehow worse for the United States. Well, this is, this is the thing, right? There's this kind of um – 
just to continue on the psychological analysis of the U.S., there's a kind of spoiledness and laziness and hubris. No, I mean, like we have to – Us? Like – the, the idea, nobody says, oh, it's a good thing that America's role in the world is declining or American power. It's, it's always a bad thing, right? But we're rarely up for the work that it takes to maintain that influence and power. That's like, oh, man, the, I don't to want me, to a perfect do that. example of this is for as long as I can remember, which – it's yes. really long time. L- long time. Which is long. Insert joke here about duration of memory or failing memory or whatever. But, but I wish Sanger were here because he would clear the center field fence with that one. Well, yeah, it's true if he were healthy enough to attend. But I, in any of it, poisoned him. Yeah, exactly. But it, 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 I, I remember for as long as I remember it, people going, well, those countries in the Middle East, those dang countries, they need to lead themselves. They need to pick up the burden. They need to assume responsibility. And the minute we step aside a little bit and they start doing it, we're like, holy mackerel, those guys, they don't have our values. They don't have our priorities. They're not doing it our way. In fact, by the way, they are doing it exactly our way. They're doing things that are inconsistent because they have conflicting views. Um, they are doing it with a mixed bag of values, you know, Iraq, dot, 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 fill in the blanks. Uh, they're doing it just like we would do it, but we don't like <laughs> it very say, much. Badly. badly. Well, <laughs> it's just, it's a mess, right? For You know, this is the thing, you know, people go and study international relations in schools or they become foreign policy specialists with the idea that, that you make a policy and then you have a policy. But foreign policy is just messy. Yeah, but there's still this, right? We always believe that there's this uh, platonic ideal of foreign policy that if we just get this right person in place, he, he or she will most likely he will implement this this perfectly and there will be no mess and it'll just be it'll be great. Right, but meanwhile Plato goes into the cave and everybody comes out fighting. You know, Plato he, goes into <laughs> our silo. Is into our silo, and he sees shadows on the wall of the silo, and then he leaves the. Oh, never mind. That's, I'm not going to get into Plato's cave here. And- so I have a slightly different perspective on that, and and your tragic fate, my friends, and deep state radio listeners, uh, although those are the same category of people, um, is that I just finished writing a book on hegemonic transition. Looking in particular at Holy why fuck. the Anglo-American the transition. Hegemonic transition. What, what the yeah. fuck is hegemonic <laughs> transition? I'm from New Jersey. Don't tell Shorter him, Shorter words, please. It's Don't when, tell him. It's a secret. <laughs> it's a secret. It is when a dominant power gets challenged by a rising one. Oh, the so, Thucydides so, so trap. The, point, though, the um, Thucydides trap. Now I know what you're talking about. The reason that the transition between... Yeah, go on. Oh, I hate that phrase. Um, uh, so the point is, though, that uh, what made the Anglo-American transition peaceful was commonality of values and similarity of governance. And so both what takes America, what it takes to make the United States um, comfortable engaging in the world on a sustained basis really is shared values. Interests, American leaders always have to drag people behind But values actually do matter, and you can see it in the way we talk about our engagement with the world. Um, And, you know, we we sometimes do an okay job. We mostly do a bad job advancing those interests. 
But one of the big questions for another dominant power in the international order is that domestic, the domestic nature of your political compact and your domestic political values are the best indicator of suggesting how a state's going to behave once it becomes dominant. And, and that's why a country different than the United States will matter as the dominant power of the international order. The Chinese are likely to behave as, as a hegemon in the way they behave towards their own population. And we're not going to feel great about that. I don't know. I don't know. What about, you know, we always, oh, American values. Well, what values are those? Slavery, genocide, inequality, the suppression of women, the willingness to shoot black people in a different way than we shoot white people in our society, the willingness to let rich people determine politics and pick our leaders. Those values, are those the ones you're talking about? So, David, I am uh, not saying the United States is a perfect society. I am, however, still going to argue that on balance, this is a freer country than others, and more people would prefer to have to be ruled by a government who they can affect how the government behaves towards its population. So I think that uh, I'm the American public appears to think that they can't affect it. That's why they voted in a last-ditch crazed effort to change that for Donald Trump and are now discovering that didn't work out so well either. Um, but no, but I mean, I think, think... I think they couldn't affect it, they wouldn't have voted though, Rosa. A lot of them didn't well, vote. Well, a lot, a lot of them, them didn't them vote, didn't. yeah. Uh, I mean, turnout rates in this country are, are abysmal compared to many other democracies. But but no, I mean, not to go down that rabbit hole, but, but you know, I think... Um, Shit happens, right? Empires decline. It's not we don't control all of this, and I, I do think that we still get locked into this. I think that we have a lot of trouble in these conversations distinguishing between what we wish would happen and what there is any realistic likelihood will actually happen, or what we can actually influence, what we want to influence, and what we actually can influence. And and we're not terribly good at at disciplining ourselves to to talk only about what we what we have the ability to influence. And, and, and I think that in a lot of these conversations about, about the future, that we, we, we simultaneously acknowledge the uh, declining U.S. influence and then proceed to carry on with the rest of the conversation as if that weren't in fact the case, uh, as if we can simply rearrange the future in a way that is better for us uh, without, you know, you know, I, I mean, I think you're right. I would rather live uh, for all of its flaws in our current system than under the current system uh, that exists in China. But I don't know that it's going to be up to us. And I, and I think that that, you know, that's why I say those thought, those thought experiments. And, and yes, Corey, we'll have the first deep state conference uh, on these, um, you know, that, 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 you know, the military would call it war gaming, right? I'll call it thought experiments, whatever we want to call it. But just, just really thinking through um, various scenarios in an effort to, to draw those vital distinctions between, hey, if I get to just create the world any old way I feel like creating it, here's what I'm going to do and won't that be awesome versus, versus, you know, what can we actually do? What is likely to happen? And what role do we actually have in, in shaping that? I, I think we still have a significant role in shaping it. And all of our choices, however, under this administration are clearly, uh, you know, pushing us further down the hole we're in rather than rather than making anything better. Um, but I think that even if we had some, you know, fantasy 
fantasy-enlightened executive uh, who we all collectively choose, um, uh, you know, most of these problems would still be there. One of the reasons we're in a deep state is because we're in such a deep hole. In fact, all the metaphors you use are holes. The silo is a hole. The third sub-basement is a hole. The silo is not a hole. The silo, doesn't silo stick up? No, it's a vertical no, hole. The vertical, vertical hole. Oh, I see. It's like a reverse hole. It's a reverse. That's well, it's just a hard hole. And then there's the third sub-basement, and then there's the yeah. rabbit hole, and then there's Tom Friedman's first rule of holes. And Isn't his hole flat, though? I mean, this is going that, down. No, a, no, that's, <laughs> that's a different. And flat and, cra- and yeah. hot and crowded. Yeah. I don't want to talk about Tom Friedman's holes. <laughs> whoa, whoa, man. I think this is inappropriate. Oh, no. and I promise you we will not call Yikes. this episode Tom Friedman's you, no, holes. No, 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 no. No, I don't want to go there. Although so. that, is the no- that is the title I of his so next book. I did not need that visual. That's I what really, I'm saying. really, didn't need so, that. So, Julia, can you Wait, offer any insight on the substantive issue? Yes. Um, I'm going to get out of the hole and offer my fantasy, which um, is perverse but wonderful in its own way, I think. I don't want to hear perverted things either. Okay. So here's what I, here's what I think. We're talking about China, but we're, what we're not talking about is uh, France and Germany as the last kind of um, – or as a temporary defenders at the very least of the kind of post-war uh, order and – in some ways, the post-World War II order was designed to kind of limit Germany's role, but now it's the kind of bastion of and like bulwark of that order. So I just keep thinking, if there's a third world war, can Germany win this one? It's like the Chicago Cubs. Like, they deserve this one. They deserve to win this one. Really? And it, would, and it wouldn't be so bad. Oh, it wouldn't be yes, so bad, this I'm one. Not feeling so good about it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be so bad, this well, one. We'd have, we'd have universal so health care. from Germany. We'd have universal health care. No, no. Well, I think that's a point. And let me push – you're going to respond, Corey. But let me build on this point and sort of push it back to you at that. And that is we do talk about values. As it happens, a lot of the values on which the international system was built – by the United States, are no longer such American values. Multilateralism, you know, sort of a New Deal approach to the world, taking care of the people who can't, promoting freedom, you know, backing democracies. And well, stuff. some of that was co-opted. The wealth, you know, the welfare state was co-opted from the Soviets in order to kind of well, it undermine was, it was them. part of a political discussion mm-hmm. also that was happening in the world since the advent of industrialization. But here's the thing: you might argue that Germany, France, or Canada have more American values of the post-war type than the United States does. Yes. Totally. Yes, I think there's lots of truth to that. No. No. (laughs) No, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that Uh, for for a couple of reasons. Um, First, I think... um, that it's easy to overreact to the immediate circumstances. But one of the really great things about the American political system is its ability to rapidly recorrect on a two to five year time frame. And structurally, a presidential system, especially one where members of the House have to run every two years, is more responsive than a parliamentary system is. Therein lies Second the problem. Thing is that yeah, so so we overreact to everything. 
but it's also like a stock market graph, right? The slope of the line is largely positive, but mostly what we notice is the wide variation around the slope of the line. This is is why Corey gets the tiara of optimism. She does, especially (laughs) since the slope of the line in terms of American influence now for 17 years. And you get the hole of pessimism. (laughs) The black hole of pessimism. But but, but this, this line has been downward for 17 years. This has not been. I don't think that's true. So you think that somehow, oh, wait, because this is what I've been waiting for for a long time. So after Bush blew up all of our alliances and our standing in the world, you think Obama reversed that and it got better? No, I think you are (laughs) overestimating the damage done and underestimating structural advances. Um, bringing China into the WTO. That which was done by the Clinton administration. I just want to point out, China was brought into the WTO before Bush. Also, Corey, don't don't you think that uh, David is playing the crucial role that you said exactly is uh, needed for this kind of rebalancing, that he's being negative and hypercritical and this is how the system corrects itself? He's just helping the system yes, correct itself. Yes, that was itself. a beautiful light motif, Julia. Thank you for that. That was yeah, I'm just Joe. I'm just Joe Jeremiah here. You're just Job. Uh, <laughs> Job. Yeah. So, better. So the other thing though, in the whale's I hole. Say, Sorry. Having having just come back from a trip to Germany to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan. Um, is that one of the things that is genuinely different about the United States than about other potential hegemons is even though we don't think of ourselves, we think of ourselves as grudgingly internationalist, um, we actually are a lot more active in enforcing the rules than most others are, not least because of our willingness to use military force and coercion and um, incentives that are mutually beneficial, even than other virtuous countries like Canada and Germany. And, and let me just point out that Germany is now having a big argument. The, the election that's coming in the fall is going to hinge in part on whether Germany should really splash out and spend 2% of its GDP to buy a military that it is largely unwilling to use or whether Germany should not spend that money and should instead be wholly virtuous and further reduce its ability to enforce the rules of the order against those who do not share its, its these last 70 years, inclination towards peaceful, rule-based international order. It, it actually really matters to be willing to enforce the rules, and the United States is different in that way than every other liberal, virtuous Western power. Well, I know the United States loves to think of ourselves that way. But Rosa, it seems to me that one of the principal values that Corey is talking about is democracy, this idea of representative government. And yet the way we practice foreign policy is not representative in the sense that we don't – we set up a bunch of multilateral institutions which we designed to be weak, where we gave ourselves effectively veto power. We run alliances where we make all the decisions. We um, like to boss people around. And right now, the main thing, you know, when I say we're ending the Pax Americana, I'm not saying we're ending, you know, uh, the period of greatest American influence. I'm saying we're moving 
from unipolarity into multipolarity. And there are models of multipolarity where there could be other countries with good values that are out there. And honestly, if we really believe in democracy, shouldn't China and India and Africa be at the table in a way that we haven't let them be at the table? No, I mean, I, I think that our our commitment to democracy and human rights and and principles of you know one person one vote and universalism uh, are impossible to fully re reconcile with the either the structure of the international order that we played such a role in helping to create or or with our our actual actions and you know we there are such a thing as as fertile hypocrisy, I suppose you could say. Um, uh, you know, maybe the maybe the, maybe our hypocrisy is a is a necessary form of hypocrisy. Um, you know, that on the one hand we act as if we believe that not all states and not all people are equal, and not all states and not all people should have an equal voice in uh, in in global affairs or collective problem solving. Uh, even even when we say that we believe that all states uh, have an important role and that all peoples are equally valuable and equally entitled to our concern, uh, you know, may, I mean, maybe there's nothing maybe there's nothing we can do about that, you know, because the the world, not all states are the same, and and I think you know all of us on a personal level probably find our own versions of that hypocrisy. I don't particularly feel like letting North Korea or or Saudi Arabia, for that matter, uh, uh, have a vote that's as large as Canada's or or the U.S.'s. Um, but but I, you know I think that these are these are just unresolved tensions in in how we approach the world. I would. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm torn. Sometimes I think that hypocrisy is necessary and maybe a good thing to sort of gradually move us towards a, a, a future in which we're all less hypocritical and can be less hypocritical. Other times, I think we should just abandon the hypocrisy. And if we're going to say, hey, not everybody counts equally, then we should be prepared to, to just say it and to give a reason for it. And as Corey, you know, as Corey said, to then step up to our own responsibilities. I don't think that's terribly likely to happen. Well, though. this week in Washington, the president of the United States is meeting with prime minister of India um, and uh, Narendra Modi. And um, India very soon will be the most populous country in the world. That didn't motivate the president of the United States, by the way, to give him a state dinner because that was too much trouble. But having said that, should There's he? only so much beautiful chocolate cake to go around. Exactly. Well, maybe. <laughs> and that's just a metaphor for the world. For everything. <laughs> but do, are, are, are you, Rosa, as you advocate these views? Per, willing? Am I willing to share my chocolate cake? Hell no. Well, that's a, that's America. Yes. That's America. <laughs> there you have it. But, but that boils it right down. Are we willing to share a chocolate cake? No. But, are, you know, I mean, j j any Lemon kind of just. Lemon meringue pie, sure. Chocolate cake, no. Any cut well. Lemon meringue pie is inferior. In any event, any kind of what? just j sorry. Oh, shit. <laughs> any kind of just view of the world would say that India deserves to have a bigger voice than Europe. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I mean, not to get too wonky on this, obviously, but but the the there problem. No oh, yeah, thing. this is the, the this is the wrong thing. There is no such thing as too Good wonky. Point. For <laughs> Thank you. Fire away. Uh, no, but I mean, I mean, needless to say. Um, we also have a tension between our ideas of sovereignty and, and statehood and our ideas of uh, uh, basic human rights and democracy. You know, that, that one very good reason to not give state X or Y, whether it's India or North Korea or Saudi Arabia, 
equal say is to say we may think that all humans are equally valuable and equally entitled to have some say in global affairs, but we think that this particular government does not particularly represent its people and why should we give repressive government X or Y uh, any any say whatsoever, any legitimacy whatsoever. I mean, the problem is that we, we created a global order in which it's kind of all or nothing. You know, either you're a state or you don't count. Um, but we don't yet have any mechanism for ensuring that governments themselves uh, act in accordance with those same principles of human rights internally. So why should we treat all states as having equal legitimacy? We shouldn't, and yet we don't have any alternative vehicle for getting at getting at or representing the views of, of, of people. And I do think that that is going to be the, the, the central challenge of the next you know 50 years is going to be to figure out what alternatives are there to statehood which clearly has proven to be a, in some ways, valuable, but in other ways, incredibly flawed and imperfect mechanism for representing people. How do we incorporate other kinds of actors? It sounds like you're describing the failure of the UN. You have the General Assembly, right? And then the where it's one nation, one vote. Yeah. And it's not so, just the UN, but yeah. But it's so useless that really the only the only thing that matters is whatever countries are on well, the U.S. Well, Security but, well, Council. You know, Rosa, of course, is a lawyer and a, and a wonk, an associate dean at the Georgetown Law School. <laughs> and, and sort a of- A bureaucrat. And view, Don't and, forget yes, to add Also bureaucrat. a bureaucrat and dog owner. And that she, no one elected. Th- th- <laughs> right, deep state bureaucrat. And she <laughs> views the world in a certain way. And we've been talking about the global order and what the rules ought to be. But another way to view this situation we're in is that the order gets weaker the institutions get weaker and that those actors who play outside the order by default get stronger and seek to get stronger. Now, I know, Julia, that you love Russia. Adore it. Adore it. Hang out there whenever you get the chance. Are probably weeping at the departure of Sergei Kislyak, (laughs) that lovable, (laughs) roly-poly Uh, spy As master. one colleague said, that man has a lot of face. He has he, several. That guy, <laughs> if he and Trump were in a double chin contest, who would win? <laughs> um, but, but in any event, it's not really fair. It's really not, baby. But in any event, the Russians gain as the international system loses. Be- right, because and- they're not about order. They're about chaos. They don't have a constructive program, right? I'm sorry, am I preempting your Well, no, I just argument? wanted to zero it in on a question. No, oh, I think that is the question. But, you know, we I, I, I tweeted or something the other day. I don't remember. I can't distinguish between tweets in my real life. Um, the, 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 the point that our declaring the Cold War over may have been the mission accomplished moment of the past 75 years. And it's not because all of a sudden Russia is somehow equal to the U.S., but that the system we set up to contain them is weakening and they're taking more and more advantage of it. And we're back, not in the same situation, but in one where they've got some momentum. Or it's the Versailles moment. It was the Versailles moment, right, where the reason that that order, global order, didn't work out is because the, the powers that they were trying to keep in check were not included and didn't feel empowered in any way and so felt like they were banging on the door and then just had to knock the door down and whatever. I'm so, going to leave that metaphor. So, Corey, for, you're speaking for all the true wonks out there. 
This I, yes. I really think I've brought you to a place that you're really going to feel comfortable. Okay, um, and that oh, is absolutely, David. I have <laughs> the horse I rode in on has been chomping at its bit to yeah, get it, at this part of the uh, conversation. Yeah, no, and no. I, New I, York. I, go on. Um, The New York Times had an article this last week on the brilliant strategy by your favorite government, Justin Trudeau in Canada. I love Justin Um, Trudeau. My favorite government. Do you know that yesterday Justin Trudeau went to a gay pride rally wearing happy-eyed socks? Happy-eyed socks. In in other words, rainbow happy-eyed socks. Not eyes, but like the... Islamic holiday of Eid. Oh, happy Eid. Is that how we say it? Yeah, I always say it. E-I-D. So he was wearing... Rainbow. Rainbow, happy, pro-Muslim socks. Justin, you dreamboat. And and then he was patting a little girl on the head at a gay pride parade. But like in a non-creepy way. Non-creepy. In a non-perverted kind of way. Well, let me pick up on a point that you were bumping up upon there with regard to Versailles. Um, Rosa, and that is this. That wasn't me. No, no, it was Julia. Oh, but oh, I'm not, that good. was just okay. deft, deft, deft. Pick hosting. up on Julia's deft. I was point. just sli- right. I was just <laughs> okay. weaving you back into the conversation. And it's a and, new band, Deft. Point. I'll take credit if yeah, it was deft, though. Yeah, thank. Okay, it was your deft weaving yourself back into the conversation. But but I'm interested with this idea of Versailles because it poses another idea, and that is Versailles failed quickly. In 100 years, are we going to look back and say the post-World War II international system failed slowly? Um, I actually hope it fails slowly rather than quickly because when things fail quickly, uh, we usually get rapid uh, Well, we're uh, late. I mean, we're 75 years into a slow motion train wreck, right? Right, but it could get fast motion. I'd rather have it continue to be slow motion. I mean, that actually I I think would be the best case scenario is that it continues to fail slowly, thus enabling us to develop alternatives and develop fixes – as it fails. If it fails quickly, we're in big trouble. Well, I think what's failing quickly is not... So the post-World War II order is failing slowly, but the post-Cold War order failed very quickly in 2014. Explain. Um, I think that was the point at which Russia said, uh, you know, I wrote about this for you at back at the old place. Um, you can the, use the, the day. <laughs> we can mention foreign policy. Yeah. Um, that basically 25 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, th- basically the defeated party piped up and said, actually, we don't agree to the terms of the su- of surrender and we want to renegotiate and, you know, put the gun on the table. And it was a pretty quick and spectacular collapse of that order. Which and, Ob- is sep- which and Obama is responded of- with, oh, "That's a nice gun." <laughs> yeah, wow, <laughs> what a nice gun you have there, Vladimir. Uh, um, well, but that's you know, I mean, I think in 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 many respects, what we've gotten to here is that you take some Bush, you take some Obama, you take some Trump. The United States is weaker than it was. The international system is weaker than it was, and you've got to scramble among a bunch of other players saying. I either need to have a new role or I can have a new role or, oh, my or God. Can you, or can you hold this while we figure our shit out? Can right. you hold this yeah. for until we get the next – maybe the next president will be but a so, little but bit But it sort of seemed like we're entering this kind of scrum. Yeah, and and I think a point that, that Corey has brought up at, at 
several different points in different episodes, which is a really important one, is that we are seeing a recasting of the American federal system in which, in the absence of coherent executive branch national leadership, uh, states are trying to become foreign affairs players by themselves. There's a long and complicated constitutional history of this, but but the interesting short-term thing is that we're seeing other countries responding to that. Uh, we're seeing countries such as Canada say, okay, if I can't deal with Washington, I'll go directly to California. I'll go directly to the states that do want to talk about trade or that want to talk about climate change. And it will be really interesting to see over the next 15, 20 years what that does to the American federal system and to what extent American little s states are going to be joining that scrum of big s states. Well, and and also- to what extent and to what extent Republicans who have been screaming uh, states rights, states rights, states rights will continue to say that when this when certain states speak out against the federal order imposed by the Trump administration. Well, when California starts operating like an independent country. Yep. By the way, Ro- Rosa said big S states. Uh, yes, yes. Big letter S. Uh, letter just S. to avoid she was any not saying, like, big Get your minds states. out of the gutter. Um, <laughs> this has been a dirty episode. Little yeah, S it really states. is. <laughs> go, everybody go and wash your ears out with soap. Look, that's the end of another episode of Deep State Radio. I want to thank Corey. I want to thank Julia. I want to thank Rosa. I did say that one of the things we would do this week is announce the people are going to win the first batch of our oh. mugs, our exciting mugs. And uh, I will, you know, I tweeted out who the leading contenders were. Um, And I I will just tell you this. The winners include the intrepid Northern Ireland farmer who essentially redecorated his entire farm with deep state radio memorabilia or or references and and the uh, creator of the first official tiara of optimism, the creator of a very credible uh, branded form of uh, deep state radio box juice, the deep state radio <laughs> nerds uh, fan account uh, creator, and even Ian Enright here, who is our producer and host at Goat State Radio, uh, at Goat Rodeo. Um, <laughs> There's no reason the goats should not have their own state. Too. Yeah, that's true. Goats fair. should have their own big ass states, but um, <laughs> um, they, yeah, those are the donkeys. But because they created the beautiful schematic version of the Deep State Radio Network silo, um, which will soon be made into a T-shirt. These winners will all get mugs. Then we'll give out some sweatshirts. And within a couple of weeks, we'll give out the fabulous Deep State Radio Network magic eight balls with which you can predict the future and are much more powerful than the glowing orbs used in Saudi Arabia. (laughs) Um, So this is the future that you have to look forward to. Continue to be great fans. Tweet it out. Uh, We will give out more awards to people who do more wonderful things like this. And um, Rose, on behalf of your dog, I will give you the last word. (laughs) (laughs) thank you everybody we'll be back in a couple of days deep state radio is a production of the deep state radio network a division of trg interactive media our podcast today was produced in cooperation with goat rodeo productions and was supervised by ian enright join us again for another episode of deep state radio if you don't We know where to find you.